The Tom Woods Show, episode 1376. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, there are a lot of people out there who will support you and will buy from you if you accept Bitcoin. But if you've ever wanted to accept payment in Bitcoin and were afraid that it would just be too complicated to figure out and set up, well, I have the solution. A free video series I've assembled that walks you through the process step by step and makes it really easy. Check it out at tomwoods.com slash Bitcoin. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. I'm going to be talking about the Federal Reserve System a bit today, but not from a technical standpoint. I'm not going to talk about the ins and outs of how it works or how it causes the business cycle or anything like that. You can get some of that in my book Meltdown from 10 years ago, now in paperback, by the way. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1376. Ten weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, that book, on the financial crisis and laying the blame at the feet of the Fed. And the remember, you can get the audiobook version for nothing. Uh, if you have not yet joined Audible, go to tomwoodsaudio.com. You can get that audiobook for free with an Audible trial. And then if you don't want to continue your trial, just quit and you can keep your free audiobook. So might as well do it. Anyway... What I want to talk about today is inspired by a paper written by Mark Thornton, who's a senior fellow of the Mises Institute. He wrote an article called Transparency or Deception, What the Fed Was Saying in 2007. 2007 really is the critical year. The housing bubble ends in 2006, and the financial crisis really gets going in 2008. So 2007 really is a critical year. What were Federal Reserve officials saying and what can we draw from this? What does it tell us about the Federal Reserve? Now, as Mark puts it, the standard view of the Federal Reserve is the standard view everybody has about every regulatory body. Because remember, the Federal Reserve is the regulator, the primary regulator of the banking system. And the standard view of regulation that we all know from school is that it's devised by far-thinking, wise public servants who are simply looking out for the public good. But Thornton says, I'll just call him Mark. He's a longtime friend. He says, what if that's not the case, though? What if it would be easier to understand Fed behavior by looking at it from rather a, let's say, not quite so benign perspective, as we've been taught to do by people like economist George Stiegler about regulation as a whole? There's something called the capture theory of regulation, whereby the various firms in an industry work overtime to build up influence and even their own personnel on the regulatory boards, on the in the agencies themselves, in terms of getting favorable legislation with regard to regulation. In other words, they work overtime politically so that the regulatory body winds up acting more or less on behalf of the very industry being regulated. And this is not exactly out of left field. This happens all the time. And Mark is suggesting maybe this has happened. Maybe this is how we should think about the Federal Reserve, that maybe it's not really acting for the welfare of the public. Maybe it's acting for certain special interests, namely the interests of the member banks. So it wants to encourage confidence in the system because that's obviously good for this particular special interest group. Now, this will come not as a particular surprise to people listening to this, but I think the way Mark puts it all together 
is very interesting and worthwhile. And just put this, think of this in terms of the whole crazy world we live in. I mean, here we are living in a world where we're repeatedly lied to about foreign policy. Just lie, 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 lie. You can think of almost any episode over the past 20 to 30 years involving foreign policy, and there are some major lies on which it is built, just without exception, case after case. And we've sort of accepted this as normal. Now, if the private sector did something like this, we'd never hear the end of it. But with the government, it's, well, you know, well, these things have nobody's perfect. You know, we get that kind of thing. Or we think it's, I don't want to say we think it's normal, but society proceeds as if it's normal that young people know nothing about the crimes of communism, the most murderous ideology in the history of mankind, and they know nothing, nothing about the crimes of communism, nothing at all. You ask them about them, they don't know anything, they have no idea what you're talking about. And not to mention we have a news media that is consistently giving us slanted news or distorted news or even so-called fake news over and over and over again, time and again. And you can see this even down to the choice of photographs they choose for different people. People they like has, you know, sometimes have uh, they have perfect lighting with almost a halo over their heads and people they don't like are shrouded in darkness or they get, they get a picture of a person making a terrible looking face as if we all don't have photos like that, you know, as if that isn't just part of what happens when you talk and you get a split second photo taken instantaneously. Yeah, we all have photos that look like that, but it's, it's absolutely everywhere. So it's just, and then if you question any major institution, there's something wrong with you, something wrong with you. So that's how I want to contextualize this discussion of the Federal Reserve is that here we have this institution in which we are supposed to repose our confidence, right? And nevertheless, it doesn't really seem to justify that confidence. And we can show that through the statements during the most important moment probably of the past, uh, I don't know, 70 years, 80 years in the history of the Fed. And at that particular moment, they said exactly the wrong things. They could not have been more wrong and again, if the Fed, the Fed is not a private institution, by the way, that's wrong. Um, you see that from some more conspiracy type people or some libertarians who are confused. The Fed is not a private institution. Um, maybe I'll get back to that later. But for right now, maybe I'll do that in another episode. That's a, that's a separate question. But for right now, the point is, if it really were a private institution and all we had from it were just one false statement after another that was obviously designed simply to prop up confidence in the system, if that were a private company doing that, we again, we would never, ever hear the end of it. But it's the Fed. If it was created by Congress and the president appoints the chairman and the vice chairman of the board, well, for some reason, it's just beyond criticism or it's, it's weird or conspiratorial to talk about it or to be critical of it. It's crazy. I mean, it's like, it's like gaslighting is constantly going on. You're surrounded constantly by lies and liars. And if you point this out, there's something wrong with you. It's not the lies and the liars we need to talk about. It's you. So I'm going to link to this article, very interesting article by Mark Thornton. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1376 so you can look at it for yourself. I might add, by the way, that Larry White wrote a very, very interesting paper. I cannot believe the time has gone by so fast. It turns out all the way back in 2005 where he pointed out that the Federal Reserve has huge influence when it comes to publishing academic research in monetary economics. So what 
White did was he looked at the major academic journals in these areas, and he found um, he was looking at the Journal of Monetary Economics in particular and the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking. So those are the key journals. And so, respectively, he found that 80% and 75% of the articles had at least one co-author with a Federal Reserve affiliation, and 82% and 87% of the editorial board members had Federal Reserve affiliations. So at, at the very least, this has a crowding out effect on research into alternative monetary regimes or uh, al- alternatives to our present system. And White himself says, an academic economist who values the option to someday receive an offer from the Fed, either to become a staff economist or a visiting scholar, faces a subtle disincentive to do regime-challenging research. And then puts it this way, uh, paraphrasing another scholar, if you want to advance in the field of monetary research, you would be disinclined to criticize the major employer in the field, which obviously, if you're following along, you know, is the Federal Reserve. So that's what we face here. So there's, there's also an incentive to publish work like this that tends to bolster the current system. Now, I know that the Fed has a reputation for secrecy, but compared to how the Fed was 30 years ago, I mean, it's practically like a, a nudist, uh, you know, at a nude beach. It is much more open and transparent than it used to be. That's not to say all problems are solved by any means, but in terms of openly discussing with the public what the monetary policy is that it's pursuing and what its goals are and all this sort of stuff, you see much, much more openness about this today. And the vast bulk of people talking about this say, well, this is clearly a good thing. You know, we're getting more openness. But Mark's point is, what if, what if it's more propaganda than openness? What if it's more propaganda meant to assure people that financial markets are stable as a way of maybe hoping to, to make that a reality just by wishing for it, in effect, by encouraging people to think that things are good? Maybe they can prop the system up. So in other words, if it's more propaganda than it is transparency, then maybe it's a net bad. Maybe it's a net minus. That's going to be Mark's uh, argument. He says, the Federal Reserve seeks to maintain our confidence in its system and to encourage people to not take proper precautions against the negative effects of its policies. Printing up money and lowering the value of dollar-denominated assets while simultaneously providing benefits to special interest groups is a deception that is a major part of the confidence game. And then he says this, and this is a, this is a fantastic paragraph. I have to read the whole thing to you. He says, the basic focus here, meaning in his paper, will be on the Federal Reserve's mission to instill confidence in us about the economy while simultaneously instilling confidence in us about the abilities of the Fed itself. The first mission is easy to see because Federal Reserve officials are almost always publicly bullish and hardly ever publicly bearish about the economy. According to the central bank, the economy always looks good, if not great. If this message fails to have its intended effect, the central bank will proclaim that the economy is better than it appears and that there are signs of recovery and economic growth. If there are some problems, please do not worry, the Federal Reserve says. It will come to the rescue with truckloads of money, lower interest rates, and easy credit. If things were to get worse, which they won't, the Federal Reserve would be able to respond with monetary weapons of mass stimulation. Of course, this perspective is consistent with the viewpoint of mainstream economists. They see the business cycle as caused by psychological problems, random technological shocks, or market failures. 
and and then Mark goes on to explain what really caused the the business cycle, which has to do with the Fed's manipulation of interest rates. But you can see, in other words, why mainstream economists would kind of be swept up by this kind of talk by the Fed because they more or less believe it because their theory of the business cycle exonerates the Fed entirely, doesn't even raise the uh, topic of the Fed. So again, what Mark is looking at are public speeches by leading Fed officials during the critical year 2007. And it begins with the chairman of the Fed at that time, Ben Bernanke, who had been an economics professor at Princeton, very uh, uh, prominent scholar. And he spoke to the annual meeting of the American Economic Association. And you'll note, he describes the Federal Reserve as being like a superhero for financial markets. He says, many large banking organizations are sophisticated participants in financial markets, including the markets for derivatives and securitized assets. In monitoring and analyzing the activities of these banks, the Fed obtains valuable information about trends and current developments in these markets. Together with the knowledge it obtains through its monetary policy and payments activity, Information the Fed gains through its supervisory activities gives the Fed an exceptionally broad and deep understanding of developments in financial markets and financial institutions. In its capacity as a bank supervisor, the Fed can obtain detailed information from these institutions about their operations and risk management practices and can take action as needed to address risks and deficiencies. The Fed is also either the direct or umbrella supervisor of several large commercial banks that are critical to the payment system through their clearing and settlement activities. All right. So what we conclude from this is Bernanke is telling his audience that the Fed pretty much knows everything there is to know about financial markets. And yet, let's bear in mind, the actual Fed in the actual world turns out to have known nothing about the the dangers that were posed by some of these instruments and by the state of the market at that time. He says, in my view, however, this is a Bernanke, the greatest external benefits of the Fed's supervisory activities are those related to the institution's role in preventing and managing financial crises. So this is on the eve of the biggest crisis in who knows how long. And it's, that's where the Fed is at its best, he says, in preventing and managing financial crises. And then he says, finally, the wide scope of the Fed's activities in financial markets, including not only bank supervision and its roles in the payments system, but also the interaction with primary dealers and the monitoring of capital markets associated with the making of monetary policy, has given the Fed a uniquely broad expertise in evaluating and responding to emerging financial strains. Now, this is coming from the same man who, from 2005 to 2007, had an absurdly rosy view of the economy. So in 2005, he flat out said there was no housing bubble. Then in the next year, he said that housing prices could not really fall substantially and that even if they were to fall, it would not affect the real economy and it would not affect employment. Then he denied that there were problems in the subprime mortgage market. And then after that, he tried to calm people's fears about the subprime mortgage market. Then he said in 2007 that he expected reasonable growth and strength in the economy and that the problem in the subprime market, which was obvious to everybody at that point, he couldn't deny that anymore, was not going to impact the overall mortgage market or the economy in general. Then in the middle of 2007, he said the global economy was strong and there'd be a quick return to normal growth in the U.S. 
Now, this is at a time when there were economists who had talked about the housing bubble, among them Mark Thornton, who had written about it several years before Bernanke was still denying that it existed. I might also mention from 2006, where you got subprime mortgages, interest-only mortgages, no documentation loans, all kinds of craziness going on. He did admit that it was possible that you'd see slower growth in house prices. They're still going to grow. But if that happened, he'd just lower interest rates. So when all you got's a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And then he said in that year, our examiners tell us that lending standards are generally sound and are not comparable to the standards that contributed to broad problems in the banking industry two decades ago. Lending standards were sound is what he says at that time which could not be farther from the truth. I mean, how do you account for this? Is it that, is Bernanke an idiot? You know that's not the case. He's not an idiot. So Mark is trying to speculate on this. The Fed chairman has huge resources at his disposal. He can, he's got a budget that's practically unlimited. He's got thousands of economists and consultants at his disposal. He's, and as he himself noted in the speech I was quoting from, he's got every possible piece of economic data and detailed information on every single financial firm there is. And yet with all those resources at his disposal, which we just heard him say, gives the Fed this unique position to understand what's going on, how did he give wrong answers again and again and again and again during the critical years? And so Mark proposes three possibilities. Uh, He says, and he said they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, Two or three of them could be correct. Uh, First, modern mainstream economics is inadequate with respect to using monetary policy to control macroeconomic outcomes. Or, monetary policy is something beyond the capabilities of bureaucratic management. Or, Bernanke was issuing statements that were in the private interests of either the Federal Reserve, the banking and non-banking financial industries, or both. What other explanation is possible? Well, how about Fred Mishkin? Uh, Mishkin is a huge, uh, hugely prominent mainstream economist. He's written the best-selling college textbook on money and banking. When my friend Xavier Merat was doing his work on, um, on derivatives from, a, from an Austrian perspective, he was going through Mishkin's book to get the mainstream view. Uh, he was a governor, he being Mishkin, was a governor of the Federal Reserve Board, and so he gave just not even two weeks after Bernanke's speech that we just quoted from at the American Economic Association, he gave a speech at the Forecasters Club of New York in which he gave the usual boilerplate. And then he gets into the topic of a bubble. And he says, there are even stronger reasons to believe that a bursting of a bubble in house prices is unlikely to produce financial instability. House prices are far less volatile than stock prices. Outright declines after a run-up are not the norm. And declines that do occur are typically relatively small. Hence, declines in home prices are far less likely to cause losses to financial institutions. Default rates on residential mortgages typically are low, and recovery rates on foreclosures are high. Not surprisingly, declines in home prices generally have not led to financial instability. Everything in this turned out to be untrue, everything I just said. And as Mark says, this guy is the leading expert on these subjects. Fred Mishkin is the expert on this. He should have known that these statements were not true or at the very least highly debatable. So it's very clear. What else could he be doing here other than using his words to try to quell people's fear 
and instilled confidence where it was not justified, and it all turned out to be untrue. And then he went on with the usual assurances, central banks can take measures to prepare for possible sharp reversals in the prices of homes or other assets to ensure that they will not do serious harm to the economy. I mean, that's just a joke. That's a joke. And if you criticize these people, these people are the great maestros who navigate us through tough times. These are the people who cause the tough times. They're the ones whose total cluelessness combined with idiotic policy decisions gave you the tough times. And then they're going to congratulate themselves on how they navigated you through it. You got to be kidding me. And yet this is exactly how we're supposed to behave. We're supposed to treat them with hushed reverence. All right, there's a lot more to say about this, this Fed stuff, but let me stop and make note of apparently one of my most beloved lines that I've ever said on behalf of any sponsor. And that's what I say for the Away Carry-On, which is by far my favorite suitcase and the best one I've ever used. It makes travel such a pleasure. And I say that when you use the Away Carry-On, and by the way, they have two sizes of carry-on. They have full-blown suitcases as well. You feel like the king of the airport. You're the king of the airport with this thing. For one thing, the four 360-degree spinner wheels make it glide across the floor. I mean, I can stand it up and then push it, and it just rolls down. Now, they don't encourage that in the airport, but I do it sometimes anyway, just to show people how smoothly it rolls down the walkway toward your gate. It's also got a TSA-approved combination lock built into the top. It's got a removable, washable laundry bag to keep your dirty clothes separate from your clean ones. It's also made with premium German polycarbonate, which means it's super lightweight, but super strong. Lifetime warranty, 100-day trial, so definitely check it out. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com woods and use promo code woods during checkout. That's $20 off a suitcase when you visit awaytravel.com woods and use promo code woods during checkout. All right, let's talk about Fed Vice Chairman Donald Cohn, who downplayed the prospect of a downturn, but again, assured everybody, well, don't worry about it, we, we, got, this, we got this well handled. He said, the Federal Reserve, in its roles as a central bank, a bank supervisor, and a participant in the payment system, has been working in various ways and with other supervisors to deter financial crises. As the central bank, we strive to foster economic stability. As a bank supervisor, we are working with others to improve risk management and market discipline. And in the payments and settlement area, we have been active in managing our risk and encouraging others to manage theirs. So, all right, so the Fed is going to deter any crisis. And don't worry, it's working with other regulators to prevent financial crises and promote stability and all this other stuff. And then he goes on, talks further, and tells us the Fed's number one job is to prevent extreme events. So the Fed is aware of so-called black swans, and the Fed tests financial firms using stress testing. So if such an event were to occur, uh, don't worry about it. The financial markets are prepared to withstand these sorts of uh, shocks to the economy. And then he says, and this one this is the most laughable of all, the systemic risk exception has never been invoked and efforts are currently underway to lower the chances that it ever will be. Well, systemic risk was exactly the argument they used to justify all kinds of Fed intervention uh, not a year later. And I've talked a little bit about this. Um, I believe in my ebook, The Deregulation Boogeyman, that I believe there's some stuff on uh, so-called systemic risk. If not, if there isn't, let me know and I'll, I'll add that into my next ebook. But um, you should pick that up, by the way. It's, it's quick. 
Uh, and it's extremely meaty. It gives you everything you need. No one's going to want to argue this point with you anymore that deregulation caused the financial crisis. Give me a break. It's at uh, regulationmyths.com. That's how you can get that ebook, regulationmyths.com. I've gotten tremendous feedback on that book. All right, then we have Fed Governor Randall Krosner. He's the Fed's number one official in terms of regulation of financial markets. Here's what he says in 2007. Looking further ahead, the current stance of monetary policy should help the economy get through the rough patch during the next year, with growth then likely to return to its longer-run sustainable rate. As conditions in mortgage markets gradually normalize, home sales should pick up, and home builders are likely to make progress in reducing their inventory overhang. With the drag from the housing sector waning, the growth of employment and income should pick up and support somewhat larger increases in consumer spending. And as long as demand from domestic consumers and our export partners expand, increases in business investment would be expected to broadly keep pace with the rise in consumption. Okay, so what actually happened was, over the next year, the Dow lost 6,000 points. By 2010, the amount of unemployment had increased by 7 million, and consumer confidence had hit a 27-year low, while sales of new homes hit the lowest level in half a century. That doesn't exactly sound like what Krosner was describing there. Uh, does it? So that's the kind of record that these people have. And they boast about all their studies of how to manage crises and all the regulators they're working with and all the data they have access to. And as a result, there's just nobody in town like the Fed. So then it turns around and says, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Keep investing and, and don't think. All right. So how's that helping? Is, in what way does that help? Is, this is so-called transparency. I think I'd rather hear nothing. I mean, wouldn't you rather hear nothing than either a bunch of either lies, outright lies, or just blather, just obviously unsupportable blather? Let me read you Mark's conclusion. You'll like it. He says, we can see that the Federal Reserve plays a confidence game. Its officials' public pronouncements, while heavily nuanced and hedged, uniformly present the American people and the leading figures in banking and finance with a rosy scenario of the economy, the future, and the ability of the Federal Reserve to manage the market. These are the people who said there was no housing bubble, there was no danger of financial crisis, and that a financial crisis would not impact the real economy. These are the same people who said they needed a multi-trillion dollar bailout of the financial industry, or else we would get severe trouble in the economy. They got their bailout, and we got the severe trouble anyway. Is it not time to bring this game, this confidence game, to an end? for the sake of economic stability. However, all this evidence does not rule out the other explanations for their behavior. This is still Mark. They could be just incompetent. They could genuinely think they are acting in the public interest. Or it might not be humanly possible to run such a monetary system, and they were just hoping that unwarranted confidence could save all of us from a genuine disaster. There's your Federal Reserve that you're supposed to have confidence in, and maybe you have a little bit of criticism of it along the edges, but otherwise, this exists to help and protect you, citizen. That's the world we live in. So again, contextualize this in the bigger picture of so-called fake news, of smearing of innocent people like those Covington High School kids, of constantly being lied to about foreign policy. It's all part of a whole, I mean, if even one of these things shocks you, that should start making you think about all the other ones. And once you see all the other ones, you just, you can't unsee it. You gotta look at the world differently.
You've got to look at the world differently. Instead of, oh, citizen, uh, sit quietly and fold your hands while the experts tell you everything we believe you need to know about the state of things. If that's the kind of posture you like, then this regime is tailor-made for you. But if you are more the independent thinking sort, then, well, you're going to be inclined to push back a bit on this. And that's what I'm here for. That's what we do, is we push back on it. All right, well, that's all pretty depressing. So let's end on a happy note. How about this? Now, of course, I realize every time I refer you to another podcast, ever so slightly, I start to put myself out of business. But, well, I want to help folks who are doing good stuff. And this is a fellow who used my link to get his hosting. So I'm delighted to tell you about a podcast called When Can I Quit My Job? And the site is whencaniquitmyjobshow.com. And the tagline here is, do you hate your job? Of course you do. So do we. Listen to our successes and failures as we try unique strategies to figure out how the hell we can finally quit. And when you look down, he's got, uh, at least as I record this, he's got 11 episodes. There's some discussion of the infinite banking concept, uh, but plenty of other topics are covered. And I think that'd be interesting. And of course, that's what I'm, I'm not saying that everybody in the world should, should quit you know, what job you have. I mean, some of you have great jobs that you'd never in a million years want to quit. But you know who you are, the ones who want to quit. And maybe this would be worth listening to. So this is a Tom Wood Show listener. And I think it's a highly worthy and intriguing topic. So check it out. When can I quit my job show.com. Remember, you want to get publicity like this from me that is worth its weight in gold. Then check out tomwoods.com slash publicity when you're about to get your hosting and you'll find out all the goodies I give you. There are many goodies that will help you start off with a bang, that will help you get traffic, will help you get going, because that's the first problem people run into. I've got my new site, I've got my new show, but nobody knows about it. Well, I solved that problem for you. So tomwoods.com slash publicity, take the plunge. I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.